last week we spent some time talking about the effects that legalism has on a church, on a body of believers. And uh, we need to get it through our head that this thing of legalism is not a game. It has dire consequences for a church or for a group of believers. It will affect you. I think sometimes we have a tendency to want to divorce doctrine from consequences. But the Bible says that uh, evil communi- communication corrupts good manners. You say, what does that mean, preacher? That means that bad doctrine leads to bad living. And uh, doctrine does affect the way that we live. I've heard some folks say, well, we just don't need to talk about doctrine. Uh, but that's a problem because the Bible says that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable first before anything else is profitable for doctrine. So all of the Word of God is doctrine. Uh, we do have to deal with doctrine. Doctrine's important, and doctrine does have an effect on the way that we behave, live, and act, and uh, treat one another. So Paul has been dealing in Galatians chapter number 4 with the effect that doctrine has had on this uh, group of believers. I, I'll also say uh, we had had some trouble with recording last week, and some had asked me uh, whether we had a recording. We do have that recording. We were able to get that salvaged, and uh, it's actually online right now. And uh, so that is there. You can breathe easy if you wanted a recording of last week. We do have it. We were able to salvage it. Uh, but as we talked about the effects that uh, that legalism has on a body of believers, we saw how it robs them of joy, we saw how it paralyzes their walk with the Lord, uh, the Bible says, and Paul was very clear, uh, clear to say this in Galatians chapter number 1, uh, that if he should seek to please men, he'd cease to please Christ. We have to make up our mind who we're living for. It'll be a great day in your Christian life when you learn how to live for an audience of one. That's not to say that we don't take into consideration the effects that our lives have on those around us. Of course we do. No man's an island unto himself. But uh, ultimately we're going to stand accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ at the the, uh, judgment seat of Christ. And we have to live in light of that truth. And Paul begins with a very interesting passage of Scripture here. Uh, I want to begin reading in verse number 19, and we're going to read down to the end of the chapter. Uh, Paul writing says this, My little children, of whom I travail in birth again, until Christ be formed in you, I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice. For I stand in doubt of you. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. The one by a bondmaid, and the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, uh, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar, or Hagar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not, break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the children of the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. 
And as we read this passage of Scripture, there are a few things that are important to our understanding of it. One is the use of the word allegory in verse number 24. Now, we have a literary understanding of the word allegory. And an allegory, uh, if I could use another word that I think will uh, help you in the understanding of the literary definition of, of allegory, let me use the word fable. Uh, if you have ever uh, read Aesop's Fable, or if you have ever read, you know, the old uh, Mother Goose, you know, fairy tales and fables, uh, there is a literary understanding of the word allegory. Those are allegories. They are stories that never happened, uh, but they were written for the express purpose of teaching a principle or truth. Now, let me say that the word allegory used right here in your King James Bible is not to be taken in the literary understanding of the word allegory. You say, what's the difference, preacher? The difference is that uh, Mother Goose never happened, but Abraham happened. Uh, Hagar happened. Isaac happened. Sarah happened. And so, uh, if there is a word I could use to couple it for the right definition, let me use the word type. These are types, meaning that they are absolutely true, historically accurate. There is no question uh, that these things took place. They're given to us as historical record. But there is also a broader truth that God was seeking to teach us through allowing the events of humanity to unfold in the way that they did. Let me say that it is a great proof of the sovereignty of God. Uh, that he could so use generations and nations to teach you and I spiritual principles. Think about how in control our God is uh, that he could do things in such a beautiful tapestry of events and spiritual truths that actual historical events that took place could be used to teach us spiritual truths. We have a big God tonight. I just think that's worth pointing out. So these things did happen. The Word of God says that uh, these things happened unto them uh, for in samples uh, to us. But they did happen to them. There's no question. There's no dispute. There's no debate. If we believe our Bible, we believe that Abraham lived and Sarah lived and Isaac lived and Hagar lived and Ishmael lived, that all these people were real historical figures, and we take that uh, without any sort of debate or dispute. And so uh, the word allegory is not to be used in the literary sense, but it's to be used as a type. And that's, by the way, that's not changing anything, and that's not trying to dismiss away what our King James Bible says. That's just using Scripture to explain Scripture, amen? Uh, All through the Bible there are examples of this. There is another word that is important for you to understand in interpreting the passage tonight, and it is the word covenant. Uh, We find it here in our passage in uh, verse number 24. Uh, It says, which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants. We know what a covenant is. Uh, Today we might use the word contract. And there are two distinct covenants that are being spoken of in this passage. One is the Abrahamic covenant. You say, what is that Abrahamic covenant? It is defined by the word promise. That's the third word you're going to need to understand. In fact, the whole book of Galatians could really be summed up by the word promise. That God has done things through promise. Not necessarily through contract, though He did make a contract with Himself, though He did make a promise to Himself and with Himself and included Abraham in it. 
Isaac is the child of promise. You and I, being saved by the grace of God, we are the products of promise tonight. And it's important to understand the use of that word promise uh, as it relates to this covenant. So uh, you imagine, if you will, if you were these Galatians, most of the time, uh, and this is just the, the sad reality of things, people that are deceived in error have more scripture to twist and back up for what they believe than most people that are found in the liberty of truth will ever learn or memorize. That's just the simple truth of it. You find someone that is caught in error, that is ensnared in heresy, and most of the time they can give you off the top of your head uh, more passages to support their false belief than you can think of in an hour to support the true belief in teaching the Word of God. Say, so why is that, preacher? That's because they've spent so much time trying to protect what they believe. Can I say to you tonight that I don't have to protect what I believe? It's true, no matter whether I protect it or don't protect it. Uh, I don't have to defend it. It defends itself. Uh, I'm not opposed to knowing what we believe and being able to explain it to folks. I think that we ought to be able to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Uh, but my hope is not founded in the ability to have all the answers. Uh, my hope is not founded in my academic prowess to explain and interpret every passage of Scripture. Uh, my hope is found in the promise of God by Jesus Christ that He He'd save me if I put my faith in Him and called on Him to deliver me from my sins and from my iniquity. And so these little Galatian believers, you can imagine how distraught they were as these Judaizers came in and began to try to convert them to Old Testament law. Now, I'm just using a little bit of sanctified imagination when I say this, uh, but I would imagine that these Judaizers were pretty familiar with the Old Testament. You can imagine how distraught these believers were as these Judaizers spouted off Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture that seemed to support the keeping of the Old Testament law, even in light of salvation by grace. And so Paul, being the learned man that he was, I think it's hard for us to even fathom how brilliant the Apostle Paul was, only by the grace and help and strength and illumination of, of uh, the Lord, but he was. He was a brilliant man. I believe when Paul said that he spoke with tongues more than y'all, I don't think he was saying that I jibber-jabber more than anybody else. I think Paul was saying, I know languages like you wouldn't believe. Uh, Paul spent time in Arabia, and surely he could speak Aramaic. Paul, of course, was a Jew by birth, and he could have uh, spoken uh, Jewish. Uh, no doubt he had a desire to go and to dispute with them in Rome. Uh, he could have probably spoken the Latin that they would have spoken. Uh, he also stood with them on Mars Hill, had a desire to uh, dispute with the Athenians, and I'm sure that Paul could speak Greek, and who knows how many other languages that Paul had a uh, conversant knowledge of. So Paul is a brilliant man. And Paul essentially says to these Galatians, those of you that desire to be under the law, let's talk about what the law teaches. Let me say that the Old Testament law was given as a shadow was not given to be the, the true light or the, uh, the manifesting light, but merely as a shadow. It was a great help to me as a preacher when I began to understand in reading through the Old Testament that Jesus Christ is on every page. Uh, 
And if you look for him, you'll see him. I mean, sometimes it'll be bold and open. Sometimes he'll be the fourth man in the fire. Then other times it'll be like uh, the little Shulamite girl said about uh, her, uh, you know, bridegroom said that I saw him through the lattice work. But all through the Old Testament you'll find pictures of Jesus Christ and pictures of truths that God is trying to teach us. So Paul says, let's talk about the law. Let's talk about uh, the Old Testament teachings and principles. And let's ask ourselves, what do they teach us? about God's dealings with mankind. He uses the word law in two uh, contexts in verse number 21. When he says, Tell me ye that desire to be under the law, he's speaking uh, of those restrictions, of those uh, that handwriting of ordinances that was contrary to us, uh, that which was given from Sinai. But then when he says, uh, Do ye not hear the law? He's speaking in a broader sense, not just of those commandments, but of the entire Old Testament. You say, well, how do we know that, preacher? We know that because the story that he's about to uh, use to illustrate this principle to us is not found from Sinai. Uh, it's found in the book of Genesis, before Sinai ever entered the picture. But it was a picture, the story between Abraham and Sarah and Hagar, and between Isaac and Ishmael, uh, was a picture, and you'll find this picture all through the Word of God, that the elder shall serve the younger, a picture of these two covenants, of the Abrahamic covenant of promise and of the uh, Mosaic covenant of works. Now listen carefully to what's said here, and I want us to note three things tonight that I believe will help us in understanding what's being taught here. It says, for as if it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, which gendereth, that's an important word that you need to understand tonight, gendereth to bondage, which is Agar, for this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. I want to say a word about the conception of these two young men. Now, Abraham is an old man. God has made a promise to him that he would buy promise and buy a miracle that Abraham and Sarah would bear a child in their old age, that from this child would be the promised seed that would come, which of course we know is Jesus Christ, that through this promise all the nations of the earth would be blessed. The whole reason that we tonight in Knoxville, Tennessee, uh, could raise our hands and say I'm saved by the grace of God is because we have been blessed by this very same promise. Uh, even those of us that are not Jews, those of us who have never set foot in uh, Israel, if you're like me, you've just about never set foot out of Tennessee, uh, we can be blessed by that because of this promise that was given. Uh, and uh, many years had passed, Sarah had not yet born a son, and so Sarah goes to Abraham and says, if we're ever going to have this promise, then we're going to have to do it. We're going to have to figure this out. Uh, evidently, God's promise is not enough. If there's going to be an heir, not Eliezer, the steward that's in your house, but if, if there's going to be an heir, Abraham, then we're going to have to connive and scheme and develop a plan through our own works, through our own flesh, to generate this heir. So Abraham says, okay, honey, let's do that. What do you have in mind? And she says, well, go take Hagar, uh, who is a bondwoman, who is a slave, a servant, and uh, she'll be your concubine. You'll go in unto her and uh, bear a child with her, and that will be uh, the promised child. Well, Abraham does this. <laughs> Abraham has a child with Hagar. 
by the name of Ishmael. To this day, there is still a contest between Ishmael and Isaac in this day that we live in. And so uh, the Lord speaks to Abraham, and uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but says, Well, what were you thinking? <laughs> uh, what were you thinking? That's not the child of promise. Abraham cries out before the Lord says, Oh, that Ishmael might live before thee. What Abraham was saying is, Lord, why can't it just be Ishmael? And the Lord says, Because Ishmael is not the child of promise. Ishmael is, uh, has been gendered by your own good works, by your own effort, by your own service in trying to achieve this in your own way. And so we know the story 13 years later. We know that Isaac uh, is born. And uh, we know that, uh, that Isaac was the child of promise. But what does this conception tell us? If Hagar is a picture of Sinai in the Old Testament law, and if Sarah is a picture of the promised covenant of Abraham and that of grace, we can learn a few things about law and about grace in the way that these conceptions took place. Let me say that first off, uh, that Ishmael was the product of unbelief. The whole reason that Ishmael ever existed was because they didn't believe God's promise that he had given to them. Why was the Old Testament law given? The Bible says, and I'll see if I can turn back here and see it, uh, just uh, you know, off the top of my head in chapter 3, verse number 19, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions. The Old Testament law was never God's intention or God's plan for his promised people. We need to understand, we preached a little on this last, uh, yesterday morning, uh, on God's plan for the nation of Israel and on how that God had greater things planned for them than the wilderness wandering. But understand that almost every step of the way, from Egypt all the way till Joshua led them into Canaan, almost every step of the way, the nation of Israel led a life of unbelief. I was talking to someone the other day about the Red Sea and what happened with the Red Sea. Sometimes, you know, we see Mr. Uh, we see Charlton Heston get up on the TV with his beautiful hair and, uh, you know, that, that chiseled jaw, and he, he holds that staff out, and you think, oh, what a glorious thing. But do you understand that the command was not given initially to stand still? The command was given to follow. Now, you may believe differently than me about this, but I believe even the parting of the Red Sea was in response to the unbelief of the children of Israel. I believe if they had done what God had commanded them to do, which was to follow the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, which the book of Exodus is very explicit to tell us was hovering out over the Red Sea, I believe they could have in faith walked over on the top of that water to the other side. There would have been no need to part the Red Sea. It was Moses that said, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. God had no intention of parting that Red Sea for them, but because of their unbelief, he did so. They get to the other side, and I believe it was the will of God for them to walk straight into Canaan without ever having to go to Sinai. I believe that's what God wanted for them. But because of their unbelief and because of their unrighteousness, God knew the law had to be given. And so they take a detour and they go to Sinai. They complain the whole way. I told them yesterday morning they had to have been Baptists. People wonder when the Baptist church started. It must have started when they left Egypt, amen, because they started griping immediately. Uh, and, uh, you know... But the law was given because of transgression, because of unbelief. God's ideal plan for the nation of Israel, for the descendants of Abraham, was that they by promise trust God and watch God walk into Canaan before them and scatter those nations. God's plan was never for them to wander for 40 years. 
But because of their unbelief, they had to wander for 40 years. Because of their sin, because of their iniquity, a law had to be given. The law, the source and the purpose of the law was in direct response to their unbelief. Let me give you a second thing. Let me say that the law was not only uh, conceived through unbelief, but the law uh, was conceived through the energy of man's flesh and his attempt to try to please God in and of himself. The law was always given with that in mind. Not that men would be justified before God, but that men might understand the boundaries and God's definition of what sin is. The law, the premise of it, was always uh, that those that live in the law should do the law. Those that, and Paul was very clear, to, uh, very careful to make that clear to us, that that was the stipulation of the law. You live in the law, you have to do the law, you have to obey the law. And in the very same way, uh, Ishmael was a picture not only of unbelief, but was a picture of trying to achieve God's plan through their own means, through the flesh, through that which was natural. Abraham is an old man, but if we know anything about biology, being old does not necessarily prevent a man from siring a child. Uh, but women do get to a place in their biology uh, where they can no longer bear children of natural means. Hagar was a young woman. There was nothing miraculous about the birth of Ishmael. It was a birth just like any other. It was a birth that was natural in the flesh. And in the same way, let me say that for humankind, unregenerate, that to try to please God through good works is a natural thing to the human mind and to the human flesh. One thing that's interesting, if you study world religions, and I don't know that that's the most profitable study, if you can keep yourself grounded, I guess it's okay, but uh, one thing that you'll find is you study religions all over this world, that their gods may look different, their sacrifices may be performed in different ways, their standards may be different, and the severity of their expectations... But the keystone principle of every single religion, and that's what it is as a religion. If it's not Christianity, it's just a religion. The keystone, the characterizing trait of every one of them, is salvation through works. Trying to do something to please God. That's the only thing that the human mind can conceive of. I was uh, told a story, and, and I thought this was very interesting, about a uh, church that uh, some folks had planted a church, and uh, they, uh, so there had been a wealthy benefactor that had fronted all the money for these folks to, to build this church. And they had bought the land, and they had poured the footers, and they had constructed the building, and all the bills had been paid, and they had a dedication day. And that wealthy benefactor came up to the stage, and to make it all legal... Uh, they took out the uh, folks who would organize that church, took out a $1 bill, and handed that to these, uh, this wealthy benefactor and purchased that church building. And folks said, oh, what a wonderful gift that he has done for these people. But really, at the end of the day, it wasn't a gift, was it? It was a sales transaction. It may have just been a dollar. But even if it's based even in the slightest, and you know why they did that? They did that so it could be legal. If our salvation has anything to do with our good works, then it's a legal thing. It's not a grace thing. So we see that Ishmael was born through the energy of the flesh. Let me give you a second thing, uh, or a third or a fourth or wherever we're at now. Let me say that Ishmael was born of a slave, as a slave, to be a slave. Isn't that what it says in the passage before us in uh, verse number 30? Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Ishmael could only be known as the son of a bondwoman. 
Ishmael could not be an heir in the way that Isaac could. You know, I pointed out a moment ago the use of that word gendereth in verse number 24, which gendereth to bondage. Means that all that Hagar could give birth to was another slave. Can I say to you that the Old Testament law, all it could do is produce slavery in the lives of those that adhered to it. It was never given for the intention of making men free. It was only given for the intention of enslaving them to show them their need of a, of a Savior, their need of a Deliverer. So those that would claim salvation by works must understand that at its very conception, just as is being taught in this passage, uh, Ishmael could never be anything more than a slave. And understand that a person whose salvation or standing in Christ is vested in their own good works can never be anything but a slave to those good works. What liberty it is, and Paul talks about it in chapter number 5 where it says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. What a liberty it is to me tonight to know that my salvation has nothing to do with my good works. What a terror it would be to live every day in fear that the next mistake we made would forever sever us from our relationship with God. That's all that a work salvation can do. You'll ask folks that believe in work salvation, you'll say, do you know where you're going when you die? They'll say, nobody can know. We just have to try our best and hope. Well, I, I'm here to tell you tonight, I know. I know where I'm going when I die. Uh, and I know where I'll be going if I die tomorrow. I know where I'll be going if I die a hundred years from now. I don't think I'll make it that long, amen? As long as they keep uh, the hardies open and, and keep letting me come in and buy food there. I know where I'll die when that day comes. I'm not looking for death. I'm not looking, as the old preacher always said, for the undertaker, but for the uppertaker. But when that day does come, if it does come in my life, if I don't live to see the return of Jesus Christ, and every day I feel like more and more I'm going to live to see the return of Jesus Christ, but whatever happens, I'm sure. I'm not a slave to my good works. I don't do good works to try to make myself a Christian. I do good works because I am a Christian. I don't do good works so that Christ will save me. I do good works because Christ has saved me. I'm not a slave to those things. So we see the conception. But notice the consequences of this relationship. Look what it says in verse number 25. This is interesting. For this Agar is Mount Sinai. Now we know where Sinai is. That's Mount Horeb. That's where the law was given uh, in the Old Testament. And answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. That's a very interesting verse, and I'll confess to you it's puzzled me for a long time. Because I thought to myself, what does it mean when it says it answereth to Jerusalem? But just as uh, that word answer is used in any context of life, it means to communicate. Meaning that Jerusalem, which now is, is there a Jerusalem now? There is a Jerusalem now. There is that holy place, quote-unquote. But is that place free right now? The Muslims have the Dome of the Rock on the place where the Jews believe that the Solomon's Temple sat. Turn on the news and ask yourself if Jerusalem is free. Every day rockets are hurled in and out of that city. It's, it's not a free place right now. It's not a place of peace. I couldn't imagine the horror that it would be to live in a place like that. Could you imagine always wondering every time you went to the store if you were going to come home? It's not a place of freedom right now. That's Jerusalem which now is. It's in bondage. You say, was it in bondage in Paul's time? Yeah, it was in bondage in Paul's time. It was under the yoke of Roman oppression. 
Uh, just a, uh, a decade or two after Paul would write this, it would be trodden underfoot. The Roman emperor, he wasn't the emperor at the time, he's a general, but Titus, who would become the uh, Roman emperor, uh, he would sack Jerusalem. One of his generals would uh, hurl a torch into the midst of Herod's temple. The temple would be burnt to the ground. The times of the Gentiles would be underway. Israel would be trodden underfoot. And to this day that we live in, Israel is still trodden underfoot by Gentiles. To this very day, it's in bondage. That's the result, listen carefully, that's the result to a nation of people living without the blessing that God intended for them. What I'm about to say is going to sound anti-Semitic to some, but I would have you know that most of the time I probably border on being a Zionist, not an anti-Semite. But to this very day, Israelites and Jews are pouring back into Israel, but are they blessed? Not like God intends. Why? They're still rejecting that promised seed. You see, that, that, that blessedness doesn't come through being a Jew by ethnicity. It doesn't come from merely dwelling in that land. For many generations, the Israelites dwelt in that land and were carried away and were persecuted and war and famine would pillage their core, their coasts. It's not enough that you be Israel after the flesh. Not enough that you be Israel under Sinai. The only time that blessedness will come is when the King of Kings returns. We find a reunion taking place where a remnant turns to the Savior, and they are no longer children of Hagar, children of bondage, but they will be children of Sarah, of this other Jerusalem, in verse 26, that's spoken of. But Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. Now, it's interesting that it speaks of a heavenly Jerusalem. My Bible does teach me about a heavenly Jerusalem. My Bible teaches me that that heavenly Jerusalem is one day going to reside on this earth. But the Jerusalem that resides now on this earth is but a shadow of that Jerusalem that is coming. That's the city that's uh, 1,500 miles square. That's the city uh, with uh, gates of pearl, with foundation of all manner of precious stones. That's the Jerusalem that Abraham looked for. A city whose builder and maker is God, which hath foundations. That's the intention. What's Paul trying to teach us? He's trying to teach that even in the message of the Old Testament law, the law is seen as insufficient. The law is seen as though it, though it may have been first. What is the principle that is taught? The elder shall serve the younger. You see it all through the Word of God. You see it in the story of Cain and Abel, that Abel was the righteous one. Uh, you see it in the picture of Adam as the first Adam. Christ as the second Adam. You see it in the picture of uh, Jacob and Esau. You see it in the picture of Isaac and Ishmael. That always that which is first is set aside for that which is second, which is to be the primary one. What is the consequence of these? They can only engender to bondage. Look at verse 27. This is interesting. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry, thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Let's read that again slowly, or we're going to miss it. For it is written, Rejoice, thou barren that bearest not. So the mother that was not bearing any children is to rejoice. Break forth and cry... Thou that travailest not. The 
one that was not travailing in childbirth. For the desolate, that one that had borne no children, now has many more children than she which hath an husband. So why is that significant? And I'm going to indulge my theatrical side for a moment, if that's okay. Turn with me to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is my long chapter, and I bet you'd be patient with me if we wanted to read the whole thing, too. I remember hearing a fellow say one time, he, he was preaching, and he asked, he said, uh, and we'll go ahead and do this just in case, he, he said, how many of y'all would be okay if I took an extra five minutes tonight? Would that be all right? Slip your hand. Would that be okay? Be all right? All right, so five, ten, fifteen, twenty, twenty. Yeah. I knew Linda would like that. Isaiah 53, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shears is dumb. So he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, shall be satisfied. By his knowledge, listen carefully, shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, he shall divide the spoil with the straw, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. You can imagine, as the promise is given to Abraham, we're all impatient creatures by nature. You can imagine as the promise is given and generations pass and generations pass. And though the nation of Israel after the flesh multiplied and became a great and mighty nation, still there were so few that ever grasped hold of this truth of promise. And all through wicked generation after wicked generation, there was no consideration of this Messiah, this promised seed that was to come. Oh, they'd speak of him. They'd set a table for Elijah. They'd speak of the Messiah that would, that would come. But they never grasped hold of this promise of grace. For thousands of years, grace had very few children. Very few. There were some. 
David was justified by faith. Abraham, of course, was justified by faith. There were some that found grace in the eyes of the Lord, but by and large, this Jerusalem, this mother of us all, this, this economy of grace that God had provided for in Abraham, this promised seed that would come, it seemed to lay dormant. All the while, Sinai is gendering millions under bondage. Oh, there's, there's many that are the children of Agar. So few that are the children of Isaac. And then as time passes, we're reminded of this truth in verse number 10, where it says, When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. It says in verse number 11, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. There on Doc Calvary, here is the promised seed that was to come. Here is the one, this man of sorrows, this king that God had promised, bearing the sins of all mankind. It almost would seem as though God's plan of grace would be snuffed out in a moment as this promised seed that was to be the king, that was to usher in this millennium, a kingdom that God had promised, this way of grace. He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. He's come to the nation of Israel to bring them salvation, and they've rejected Him. Men love darkness rather than light. Here in this dark midnight of Calvary, all hope seems to be lost. His body is taken off of the cross. Limp and lifeless. Placed in a borrowed tomb. Three days of silence set in. Three nights of sorrow seemed to grip the souls of his followers. But then there comes a rumble from the tomb. And on the third day, the Bible says that my Savior and yours rose with power and glory. Defeated death, broke his crown, took his scepter and ushered in a new day of grace. And so it is with that that Isaiah says, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Say, preacher, why would you say all that? I want you to see the context that Paul's quoting. For all these thousands of years, this promise seemed to lie dormant. But then through the cross of Calvary and through the glorious resurrection, she that was barren, this Jerusalem, which is above all, which is the mother of us all, which is free, all of a sudden in a moment the floodgates of grace are open, not just to the nation of Israel, but as God had always providentially planned, to those not only of Israel by the flesh, but those who would by faith become Israel of promise. And now all of a sudden, this Jerusalem has multitudes of children. You and I, we're children of this Jerusalem which is above. We're children of promise, just as Isaac was. So it is in the darkness of Isaiah 53 that this glimmer of hope seems to shine forth. I'm sure it was puzzling to those that read Isaiah's prophecy. But Paul, on the other side of Calvary, can see clearly what was being taught. That in the midst of that darkness, this mother that had been so long neglected would now bear forth many children. It says in verse 28, Now we, brethren, are as Isaac was, are the children of promise. But 
But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. I've said a word about the conception of these young people, these young men. I've said a word about the consequence of these young people. But let's say a word about the contest between these young people. It was always a strained relationship. And if you read through the book of Genesis, you'll see that. Ishmael had a hatred of Isaac. There came a time, listen carefully, there came a time when they could no longer survive side by side. There was a time when the Old Testament law survived side by side. Grace didn't begin at Calvary. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We talked for... Uh, at length about the difference and about adoption, about the place of Old Testament saints. Let me say that God was saving people before uh, the New Testament. Uh, Abraham was counted righteous because of his faith, and David was. But there came a time when the son of the bondwoman and the son of the free woman could no longer live side by side. What is Paul teaching? He's teaching how that we have come to the place where the child of the bondwoman must be cast out. We find this same truth taught to us in Romans chapter 11, where it's told to us that if it's of works, it's no more of grace. And if it's of grace, it's no more of works. It was inevitable, for Ishmael could never be an heir like Isaac would be. He was not the promised child. And those that have put their faith in the law can never inherit those things which come only by promise, what can they inherit? Well, they can inherit that which uh, comes from their parents. I find it very interesting uh, that uh, though Ishmael could only ever inherit the life of a, of a bond slave, that when you think about Abraham and Sarah, what is Sarah a picture of? Well, we find in this passage that Sarah is a picture of grace in this context. What does Abraham picture for us? Abraham is the father of the faithful. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. But there was a contest in that day. That contest, in a physical sense, still exists. That's what all the feuding and fighting is about. That's what every rocket that's launched, that's what every peace treaty that's, uh, that is begun is about. Is about this contest. Prophecy was given that Ishmael would be a wild man, that his hand would be turned against his brethren, against his neighbor. That's not changed this day that we live in. Lots of folks spend their entire lives trying to understand what's going on in the Middle East right now. The only way to understand it is in light of Scripture. There is a supernatural, listen carefully to what I'm about to say, there is a supernatural and divinely providential hatred between the Jews and the Arabs that will never be resolved in a true sense until the King of Kings and Lord of Lords returns. I know the psalmist said to pray for the peace of Israel, and I don't fuss with folks. I want Israel to have as much peace as it can have. But I'm keenly aware that Israel will not have any, any semblance of peace until first off the man of sin comes and gives them a false peace. And secondly, when the man of sorrow comes and gives them an everlasting peace. That contest exists to this day. It will always exist. But remember, we're speaking here in types. And understand that to this day there is a contest in this world that we live in between two basic ideal systems. Do we approach
approach God through works or do we approach God through grace? Anyone that tells you you must be baptized to be saved believes you must approach God through works. Anybody that tells you that you must pay money to the church believes that you must approach God through works. Anybody that believes that if you sin you'll lose your salvation believes that you must approach God through works. The vast majority of belief systems in this world are of Sinai. They are gendered unto bondage. They can produce no life. There is only one economy and one system that is of Jerusalem, and that is salvation by grace plus nothing minus nothing. That contest still exists today. When you witness to folks, inevitably, you'll meet very many that you'll ask them if they've ever been saved, and they'll run as a refuge to their good works. That contest still exists. Still, the chief thing, my old pastor used to always say this, that it's no challenge to get folks saved if you can only first get them lost. If you can only first get people to realize that their good works are insufficient. Oh, you're just, you're just a short trip to Calvary then. But that's the chief challenge today. This contest still exists. How do we get to heaven? How do we get to God? The Roman Catholic Church says it's through them and through their sacraments. The Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses says it's through them, through their church. Uh, the Muslims say that it's through violence, through the edge of the sword. The Orthodox Jew says it's through the keeping of the law. The humanist says it's through their kindness and compassion towards other folks. Only the Word of God says that it's through Calvary and through grace. That's why Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. There's only one way. Oh, there's many ways to go to hell. But there's only one way to get to heaven. This contest still exists today. Nevertheless, verse 30, let's say if the Scripture cast out the bondwoman and her son. It's interesting to me that it says the bondwoman and her son. Now, there's a historical reason for this, and that's because Abraham did cast out both Hagar and Ishmael. But as we know, these historical events, God sovereignly appointed that they would be in such a manner as to teach us a spiritual truth. What is the spiritual truth? The spiritual truth is we cast out the works of the law, both as a means for salvation in Hagar and as a means for sanctification in Ishmael, both as the initial in our approach to God and as the consequential in our walk with the Lord. We have to make up our minds. You see, at this point in the discussion Paul's having with the Galatians, it's not a question of how you're saved. He's going to begin talking in chapter number 5. You remember I gave you a basic outline when we first started this, that the, the first two chapters... Uh, dealt with uh, the personal side of things, the testimony of what Paul had done, and, and the next two chapters dealt with the doctrinal side of grace, and the last two chapters dealt with the practical walk of grace. Paul is saying this, prefacing the discussion about the practical walk of grace. He said, what does that mean to me, preacher? That means that this has application not just to those that are looking to works to save them, but those of us that have been saved and are now looking to good works to sanctify us rather than through submission and surrender to the Holy Spirit. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. 
That which is secondary. That which chronologically comes later. There are many that think they're going to get to heaven through their good works. But there's a lot of folks that are truly saved by the grace of God and are still trying to impress God through their good works. Still trying to be somebody through their good works rather than surrender to the Holy Spirit and uh, obedience to the Word of God. They're still trying to live up to that standard. We're to cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. I'll give this closing statement, and then I'll be done. The things that God has promised to His children can come only by that means, promise. You want to know the joy of the Christian walk? It's not through trying to keep up with the Joneses and trying to impress everybody else. It's through learning who you are in Jesus Christ and living that walk with Him. I gave the illustration last week of the difference between plays that are being called on a football field from the huddle and those that are being called from the coach. We talked a little bit about how that uh, those being called from the huddle, they may seem right, but they don't have the same depth of wisdom that the coach has. And I fear that what we've done a lot in our churches is we've just learned how to walk the walk and talk the talk. We've learned what the plays are, and we're calling the plays from the huddle rather than talking to the coach. And let me tell you that those things that were given by promise, the inheritance of those that are born again, they don't come from the huddle. They come from the sideline. They don't come through walking the walk, talking the talk, and trying to do what's expected of you. They come from communion with the Lord, through the Holy Ghost, through the Word of God. This is the truth we must grab hold of. This is the truth we're missing today, is that it's only through the close walk with Christ day in, day out, that we enter into the inheritance that was afforded us through Calvary. Oh, that we might get to the place, friends, where we cast out the bondwoman and her son, quit looking to our good works to make us the Christian that we need to be. Oh, there will be good works, but those good works are not what brings the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit of God already indwells us. Those are the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about. It's interesting about fruit. Fruit is something that comes after the branch has already grown. Right? Isn't that true? The fruit comes after we've been walking with the Holy Ghost. We don't start trying to exhibit the fruit to get the Holy Ghost to show up. We start walking in the Holy Ghost and the fruit will show up.